History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the intersection of business and history. I'm your host, Jason Dressel, and Happy New Year. Happy 2023. I hope everyone had a restful holiday season. It's good to be back, and hopefully 2023 is going to be a healthier year for the world and a good year for you. I think most people would say that the 2020s have been pretty intense thus far, and I know I, for one, am looking forward to a year in which there may be a little less uncertainty in the world, and it continues to feel a little less global pandemic-y, if that's a word. So, because it's the new year, what that also means is that this week there will be CES in Las Vegas. CES, aka the Consumer Electronics Show, has really become this kind of annual touchstone at the beginning of the year that breaks through the clutter and generates a number of stories because it has become the global forum for innovation and the platform where many new technologies break through and really begin to um, break through with the broader marketplace. And you may be surprised to know that CES has occurred for well over 50 years, and it's just gotten bigger and bigger and more global year after year. And while CES has become a bit of a household brand, the catalyst behind CES is the Consumer Technology Association, which this year turns 99 years old. And I am honored to be joined today by Gary Shapiro, the longtime CEO of the Consumer Technology Association and one of the chief architects and masterminds behind what CES has become over the last 40 years. So as you are about to hear, Gary and I had a terrific, sprawling conversation that covered what he's excited about at this year's CES, his perspective on the state of innovation and many of the issues and trends in technology that are occurring globally, and how CES and the consumer technology space has grown and changed over the last 50 years. So before we get into the conversation, a quick introduction to Mr. Gary Shapiro. Mr. Shapiro is the president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, which represents over 1,500 consumer technology companies and is the owner and producer of the Consumer Electronics Show. Gary joined CTA all the way back in 1982, and over the last 40 years, he has been a leading voice in policy, thought leadership, government, and community development. Among other roles, he is currently on the boards of the Northern Virginia Technology Council, the CEO Update Roundtable, and the Council of Manufacturing Associations Board. Gary is also a New York Times bestselling author whose books include Ninja Future, Secrets to Success in the New World of Innovation, and has more than 1,200 opinion pieces in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. In short, Gary is a leading authority helping inform and direct policymakers and business leaders on the importance of innovation and technology to the U.S. economy. And I was really grateful to have him on the pod. So here we go with Mr. Gary Shapiro. Gary Shapiro, uh, welcome to History Factory Plugged In and Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored to be on your uh, show. Well, sir, let's start with CES 23. Uh, I can't believe we're saying 2023. Uh, but what are you excited about? And and how is maybe uh, this year's show a little bit different than past uh, CESs? Well, CES 2023 is unquestionably a comeback show. Uh, we had a 2022 event in the midst of Omicron. And this event is, is by almost every measure, a huge amount bigger in terms of the footprint. 
Uh, we're looking as of today at about 2,500 companies and 2.1 million square feet of exhibit space. When I say 2,500 companies, that's 2,500 companies exhibiting. We'll have a lot more than that. We'll have about a, our goal is 100,000 people coming, one third of those from around the world. We have um, most of the Fortune 500 companies are exhibiting, and that's exciting. And the average per, the, the average number of meetings a person has at CES is about 29, super efficient. People love it, and it's because it's global. It's focused on innovation, and it crosses several industries, from artificial intelligence to broadcast and the content creation to robotics to transportation to healthcare technology. Uh, there's a lot of cross-pollination which is going on, which is super important in innovation today because no company could do everything alone, and they're inspired by what other companies are doing. A lot of it is about deal cutting and partnerships and strategy going forward. And so, and so much has happened because, in part because of the smartphone, has so many sensing devices in it, and those sensing devices are now just a few cents a piece, and you can put them together in very clever ways, combine them with the internet, throw in some artificial intelligence and some algorithms, and you can do almost anything. And it's making the world safer and better. In fact, we've teamed up with the United Nations and uh, the Academy, the World Academy of Science and have recognized that to push the concept that every human being has securities that are rights, whether it's a right to healthcare, a right to um, clean air, a right to clean water, a uh, also a right to food, and a right to security in terms of their community, a right to mobility, things like that, all which are all kind of combined very nicely. And that's going to be a, the theme of the show overlaid by the theme of sustainability for the world. And a lot of the solutions to the world's problems will be shown at CES. Hey, hey Gary, you, you jumped right right to it. That was one of the things I was I was keen to to ask you is is the technology now is just fully embedded in in every industry, and you're bringing together so many different types of industries and, and companies all around the world under a big tent. Um, what? How, how how do you see the role of 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 CES and and the Consumer Technology Association more broadly in terms of being a catalyst for all these industries and companies, and what opportunities or, or, or challenges might might you see in that? That's a great question. The uh, Consumer Technology Association is a nonprofit trade association representing American companies only, and we define American as U.S. and Canadian companies. Uh, it could be a subsidiary of a, of a company outside, but it must be a U.S. or Canadian company. And what we do, we have a very simple focus, and that is to promote the concept of innovation to solve world problems. And so everything stems from that, including why we have events. And one thing we've learned from COVID is that as much as I am the paid cheerleader for the use of technologies like the one we're using today to have this discussion and allow work from home and everything else, the truth is, is that we need to see and physically be with each other, to establish relationships, to move the world forward, whether it's innovation or anything else. I mean, it's um, a trade show or a business meeting is a five cents experience. You know, you could share a cup of coffee or break bread, get to know someone, you build a relationship of trust and relationships of trust are important for, for partnerships to move forward and partnerships are an absolute necessity for every company now that's part of this digital revolution that makes the world better. So. We have uh, certainly changed. The focus on the pandemic and healthcare has certainly given a more major focus on health, but we've been there for several years. 
And we've been a convener of uh, different industry groups, of doctors groups, hospital groups, insurance groups, drug companies, et cetera, to try to say, look, we have a problem and an opportunity in a sense. The problem in healthcare is we've relied heavily on drugs and doctors. Drugs are expensive and doctors are limited by a US law. We can't have more doctors than we had like 30 years ago. And uh, even nurses where there's no limit, it's just uh, there's only so many slots in education and it's getting very expensive. So technology is is a, a, a gap filler in a huge way, but it could even go further than that. It could actually be predictive in, in whether you get sick and what you're doing. It could be um, proscriptive in terms of, of defining the treatment that's necessary. And, and it could be cost-cutting in the sense that hospitals' biggest problem is returning patients and whether they should return and when they should return. And there's a lot of remote sensing devices. There's telehealth. There's a lot of things which are very positively quickly being used, accelerated definitely by multiple years because of COVID, and a focus on healthcare, which is extraordinary and has made a difference in how doctors practice and how people are treated. But the but the runway ahead of us is so broad and so oppor- such an opportunity to, to have a healthier and environment where people feel better um, because there, there are differences in humans biologically based on their genetic code, even where they live, their own environment, their sex, there's some their their activities in life, their diet, their weight. There's so many things that are factors that go into these things, and we're we're on a cusp of figuring out how to treat people um, from everything from minor maladies to major life-threatening and ending diseases. And it's a matter of the use of technology, the use of drugs, and the use of artificial intelligence, and and some really smart doctors. We have already we have so many doctors involved in our organization at the at the level I'm married to a doctor and. And there's um, a number of board members that have companies that are that are doctors, and we have everyone from the chief medical officer of Microsoft involved to what we're doing to those who are the, some of the biggest companies in the world to the startup companies as well, and they're all working in the same direction, which is and 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 the federal government under all the last three administrations has been very supportive of saying let's look at different ways of doing things involving technology, but you know there's the, we're still not where we should be. And but we have great possibility. And the CES is a is a in terms of healthcare is transformational and showing that um, several hundred companies are showing healthcare technology products. There's great discussions going on at our show and other shows around the world as well. And it's just um, this is a, just a, such a phenomenal opportunity for mankind. And my goal and our goal is not only healthcare but in other areas, for example, self-driving transportation in terms of sustainability, in terms of um, so many things is to make sure that the government makes the right decisions. Sadly, I think in some ways they're, they're making some poor decisions lately. And that is um, we have survived and done amazingly well as a country because we're the most innovative country in the world because we have the most diverse citizenship. We have a First Amendment which protects us, which allows you to petition your government. We have a culture of challenging the status quo. We have great universities educational system. We have people who culturally think we know how to make things better. But now we're up against the federal bureaucracy, which has done a 180 degree switch in saying we're going to measure the legality of, in an antitrust competitive sense, by not no longer are we measure by what's best for consumers. We're going to measure by what's best for protecting the status quo competitors. That is the formal policy the Federal Trade Commission has today adopted. And it's a radical shift, which is detrimental to the future of innovation in this country. And in, you know, keeping countries embedded in their competitive position is an absolute sin 
against the free market and a sin against innovation. And it's something that that, that we're committed to fighting all the way. And, and, and a bit related to that, and taking a step back to, to your first comments there, Gary, with respect to healthcare, um, I would imagine for the average American, when they hear uh, Consumer Technology Association and they hear CES, which is at this point almost a household name, the first thing that comes to mind may not necessarily be healthcare. Um, I'm curious, how how does the organization go about identifying emerging technologies and what kind of criteria is applied to determine, you know, what industries or sectors you all kind of lean into and maybe specifically through the lens of of healthcare um you know how long has healthcare really been part of the uh the the the, the scope so to speak that's a terrific question i'm not sure you want my very lengthy answers but i'll try to consolidate to the most salient points so, so i'm not a big fan of strategic planning um i am a big fan of setting some big goals into the future so every couple of years our top people get together and we look at the landscape and we come up with a two-page document about where we want to be in five years. And I was just reviewing the, the one we did pre-COVID, which is kind of a joke now because it really COVID, you know, flipped everything up for three years now. Uh, but on the other hand, we uh, we did identify the areas we wanted to be in and some of them kind of filtered out into nothingness, but others were big areas. And we, we have identified healthcare technology for at least 10 years now as an area we wanted to be in. Um, and in you know certain other areas, it just became a little less important. Like five years ago, it was all about uh, you know car sharing and house sharing and things like that, and um, you know Uber and Lyft and Airbnb, and that became less important over time as everyone realized the benefits. It didn't become the, the policy battle that we uh, and we thought it would be. So it's a um, we want to you know we know where it's going in technology now. And we've identified that. And what we do is we're very opportunistic. So we shift gears quickly uh, because we we set annual goals that are set literally by our entire staff. Every employee has a shot at it before our board even sees it. And then our board reviews it. And they said, you know, the job of any board and governance is to do really two things. One is to, you know, determine the overall strategic strategy, oversee the strategy of the organization and the execution of that strategy. The other is to hire and fire the CEO. And, you know, uh, and the other is actually to provide a sounding board. There's a third thing that I really value is to provide a sounding board and, and different inputs, different advice and diversity of opinions. Um, you know, obviously, I don't want to spend a, a lot of time talking about hiring and firing the CEO. So the strategy is important. But Let's talk about one and three. <laughs> yeah, so opportunity is important. And we do also discuss ideas and things like that. But but. We have succeeded remarkably. And, and when I first took the job, we had only like fewer than 100 companies and we're focused in just a couple of areas. And I insisted we'd be allowed to grow. And, and we now we have 1,500 members um, and we've grown the CS into the most important global business innovation event there is. And certainly almost the largest by almost every measure. Uh, but it, it, it didn't happen just because it happened. We we envisioned the future. And one of the important things we envisioned was not necessarily the categories that were going to grow, but the fact that business in different industries would, would need each other and need a place and a form, a forum to do that and where they could get together. Because you can't succeed in business now unless you cross different industries. And, and, and no one has all the expertise. Not even Apple uh, has that. 
And that's why they have strategic partnerships and they buy companies and things like that. And we decided we would be the forum for that to occur. Um, and we would do it in a way which was cost effective and allowed all sorts of new ideas to surface. Plus, we have a cultural bias, which goes back to my first board meeting 30 years ago when I heard the discussion of whether we should change the fees for the cost of exhibiting. We have a bias towards the startups. Um, so we have an area of the show called Eureka Park where we have a over a thousand startups that are folk, you know, they they come there with their ideas basically and and you know, maybe a prototype or and they meet not only journalists, but retailers that could buy their products, you know, Walmart and Best Buy and others, and Amazon certainly are there in force, uh, but also um investors. And even more significantly, sometimes are the big companies roam their eyes. They send their entire staff there, some of the companies to get their own ideas, to be the first customer or to be an investor or to be, frankly, an acquirer. It's one of the things I'm, uh, one of the bad ideas we're, we're, we're fighting in Congress is that you should ban big big companies from acquiring small companies. That would be absolute insanity because it wouldn't allow a lot of the funding to go to the small companies from investors who want an exit because you can only exit by going public, by growing intrinsically or being bought. And if you cut off that leg of the three-legged stool, the, the stool falls over. So. Uh, the the bias we have and our focus is on innovation, as the, which drives our all our public policy. It drives our events. It drives what we do, and it drives our own staff in terms of creating new things and being opportunistic, um, where we're willing to switch directions mid-strike. And in you know the fact that COVID occurred, we were responding to COVID in February of 2021 because yeah, that's right. 20 or is it 20 whenever COVID first hit I'm forgetting 2020 2020 yeah yeah I mean we literally had a a board level discussion on February 2nd about COVID um where to be honest my wife told our top board members they were in the Kubler-Ross stages of denial because it's not about your supply chain in China it's about hitting this country and racial unrest and social unrest and about um the fact that you're the markets would be raw, the economy would impact, and there'd be no vaccine for a very long time. So so we were prepared and we 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 did a lot. I mean, I can talk about a lot of things about how we do strategy and how we choose the areas we're going after. But frankly, the areas we're going after are not secrets. Uh, you know, from the Obama to the um Trump to the Biden administration is the certain consistency from the Office of Science Technology Policy and the White House that these are important areas, artificial intelligence, robotics. Um, mobility, although the Biden administration has gone away from self-driving cars and focused almost exclusively on electric vehicles, which is good and bad because self-driving saves lives and electric doesn't. Um, the But there are other environmental issues there as well. Uh, but, you know, there's certain areas we all know where the world is going. And China is presenting an increasing threat, not only competitively, to the Western world in terms of these same categories, given their investment, but how they go about it. I mean, you know, first of all, obviously they they borrow a lot of the things we create, often illegally, uh, but they also have no sense of personal um, uh, protection for their citizens. So privacy doesn't really exist in China. Every everyone is socially ranked there, and you need data sets for artificial intelligence. And we put up really huge barriers. Europe should be even bigger barriers, uh, but with HIPAA and with uh, you know, new privacy laws, it's very difficult to get data sets in the U.S. And, and proceed forward in a lot of ways which would save lives. And that's that's a real challenge. And we also have, you know, we we can't buy a fiat of government often say, 
every electronic medical record must be readable and usable and scrapable to get the data to figure out how a person was treated and what they had and you know put it into a big computer to figure out what the best treatments are for that type of person. So we have some, China has a, a really good strategy, um, but the challenge is what they'll do with it is they'll trample on the rights we take for granted, like the right to vote, the right to religion, the right to petition your government, the right to marry who you want, all these rights that we take for granted in the United States don't exist in China. And you know we're in a battle for, for influence in the world in which direction other countries go. And we have a lot in common with the Western world and Japan and South Korea and Australia, New Zealand, Canada, a lot of freedom-loving democracies in the Americas and in Europe and elsewhere. Um, so it's 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 a very important point in American history as we figure out that our allies are our friends and we need to work together. We need to have trade together. We need to recognize that China does manufacture a lot and we have to wean ourselves. We can't wean ourselves immediately. It'd take 20 to 30 years, just the way we can't wean ourselves from oil um, without shutting down the healthcare system and many other industries and transportation, of course, for, for decades as well. But we know where we want to end up and it's important to keep working towards those goals. That was a very succinct answer to a, to a broad question. Um, stepping back again, and maybe thinking a little bit historically about the context of the the, the growth of of CES, which has become really a household name that's that's synonymous with innovation and and consumer technologies. When did you see that reputation really begin to take hold? I mean, as you think back, were there kind of some breakthrough moments or products or kind of key tipping points where this momentum of it really just becoming this kind of iconic brand that that even you know, just regular consumers kind of look forward to seeing what's going to be in their newsfeed. You know, the week after the show. When did that start to happen? Well, you know, CES is definitely a global brand, or as they say in Europe, CES. I even heard it someone called last night. I was at a reception and they called it that. I said, "Thank you. You're an American calling it CES. That's great because it is. It's it's become. It's not the consumer electronics show because it's so way beyond that. Yeah, the business products. It's not just about electronics. It's about all sorts of technology." And we've definitely worked towards that goal. And one of the things we did that was extremely effective that a marketing person suggested, I said, why not? Is we actually changed the name of the show about 20, 25 years ago and called it the International Consumer Electronics Show at that point. We put international and we put up flags in different countries. We added translations. We went global. And that worked remarkably. Now, one out of three people that come to see us are from outside the United States. And it's a global event and global leaders speak, global leaders of companies and governments come. Um, certainly uh, President Macron is a great example of that. He helped shift France and uh, from one unicorn, a billion euro company to 26 now. And he brought several hundred companies from France as minister of the economy. And he created a political party, blew up the party system of France based on the concept of innovation and technology. The, the party La Marche means forward. And that's what that's this, the New York Times even recognized this recently in an article. They talked about how it is all based about innovation and entrepreneurship in France. And and, and people are tracking, you know, fortunately, he's reelected. And he was kind enough to recognize our discussions and influence on him and, and give me this the right to wear this little red thing on my jacket. It's the Legion de Honor. So I, I, I'm thrilled that it's become global. But us becoming a global brand was 
it was a long strategy over time that kept iterating. And, and, and it went from how we positioned our keynoters and, and who we chose and required they be global corporate leaders to uh, how we literally went around the world and have events in France and Amsterdam. And we've had them in Sweden and Japan and even China for several years. Um, we we worked it. I'm not, it was a lot of travel. You can look at my body and, and recognize, as I told Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta, that this body is mostly made up of Delta food. So, uh, <laughs> and it was it was a strategy, a multiple strategy, but we realized that the world was heading towards um, relationships between industries. And we positioned the show that way, where you had to be there if you were focused on growing your company. Because one of the things that I've written some 1,200 articles and three books about is it's to survive as a business today, you can't just take a picture or a snapshot and say, oh, those are my competitors, I'm going to compete with them, and this is what I'm going to do. You have to realize everyone else is taking that same snapshot. And as Wayne Gretzky said, you know, you, sh you shoot where they're going, um, you don't shoot where they are. And that's, or you pass. Uh, and you, of course, he also said, you miss every shot you don't take. And we, we've taken a lot of shots, we haven't hit them all. But we've certainly hit a lot of them, enough of them, where we position ourselves focused on innovation in a very big way. And innovation is our brand. It's who we are. It's what we live and breathe. And we've done that in a whole series of different ways from our annual goals to our our, our staff, um, how we do things and, and what we do and, and what we advocate in Congress. And we limit ourselves. We don't ask the U.S. government for money for our industry uh, because we think the federal debt is really important and interest rates are really important. We've been saying that for 25 years. And we've seen, seen now the impact today of inflation caused by clearly by government spending and government printing money, essentially, which is what the Fed has done and, and, and Congress spending money we don't have, which is what Congress has done. Um, so that's led to this inflationary environment. We're all suffering from it now, especially people with less income. It's not been a great policy. We've talked about it. We've tried to advocate on it. But tying that into innovation is a little more difficult, but it is a future focus and this future focuses on the next generation and how they'll do and what they'll inherit from us. Because I think the role of every generation is to leave the next generation with a better world. And in many ways we have failed generationally. Some ways we've succeeded, but I think through innovation and through what we'll see at CES and other events um, and other business meetings, you will be able to see where we're going potentially if we don't mess it up. And where we're going is is a much better world. And I believe in that passionately. And that's what gets me coming to work every day is the fact that we have an opportunity to change the world by the actions we take, whether it's creating an event where people can who should meet each other can meet each other and be stimulated to create new ideas and or or use advancing policies which will help innovation, like getting the best and brightest people to the United States, or more typically, you know, convincing government that they shouldn't do something which will really hurt innovation yeah it, it seems like a it seems like a benchmark uh, of an association in, in some respects is to sort of outgrow or outstrip your acronym and it seems like you all have been able to to do that with how <clears throat> how ces has really grown and, and and evolved beyond its kind of original sort of vision vision um but what was that? What was it like in those early years? You know, do you have do you know what the origin story of the of the CES of, of what CES was and how it started? Indeed, I do. It's um, it was started in 1967 by the guy that hired me. 
I started out as a law student at Georgetown working for a small law firm that merged with a big one. And one of the clients was this association. And while I was in law school, I was literally doing work for the association as a consultant, a lawyer, or actually a law student working for a, believe it or not, the former cabinet secretary who invented the zip code when he was postmaster general under President Kennedy. Mm. And that was a cabinet secretary position. And, um, and I learned a lot from him at J. Edward Day, who had also written books. Um, about public speaking and humor, but but he was nice enough to take me under his wing and mentor me and, and essentially give me this client. And I had a great relationship with Norman Jack Wayman, who was a Purple Heart World War II veteran who lied about his age to serve in the military. And he, you know, although we were created 98 years ago as a Radio Manufacturers Association in New York, even before Jack's time, uh, Jack joined in the early 1960s when it was radio and television only. That was the big products, that and the phonograph. Um, and he had the vision to recognize that there's a global industry starting, and he thought they needed a trade show. And we were, our, our electronics products were given a little portion of the National Association of Music Merchants show, which still exists, but it was musical instruments. And uh, Jack didn't think that was respectful enough to this growing world of home entertainment. And he created a show in New York City in 1967, had about 100 exhibitors and I think it was 10,000 feet of exhibit space and a few thousand people attended. And then he moved it to Chicago. And then what happened in Chicago one January was the city froze over with negative temperatures and no one left their hotel rooms. So he actually had the foresight in the mid-70s to move it to Las Vegas, the first business event in Las Vegas, which was wow. famous only for divorces and quick marriages and gambling. They had nothing there. And, um, you know, I remember when I first went to the show in 1981, I remember the biggest exhibitor was Panasonic, and they were literally on a basketball court. And the convention center wasn't really big enough. And, you know, we pushed through, and Jack supported me. And I, in the early 1980s, the, the, the big show was Comdex, frankly. They were bigger than we were. And, um, and Jack had this idea that we could build our own space. And Working with Jack, we approached three other groups, and it was the Comdex, our competitor, which we didn't know at the time they were our competitor, but they ended up being. It was Sheldon Adelson who uh, started that event, agreed. And I remember we signed paperwork in August, and we built a 120,000-square-foot building by November, and I was going back and forth. And dealing with Sheldon was not a pro-union person, and and he had some union strikes, and we still got a 120,000-square-foot building built, which we used for several years very successfully. But meanwhile, Las Vegas was exploding and building buildings, and lucky for us, and now they have more hotel rooms than any city in the country and three of the 10 largest convention centers, and we use all of them, which is great for us, and you know, it's a global international airport. But in terms of Jack's vision, uh, it, was, it, was, it was his vision that created the show. When I took over, and I worked for Jack as his lawyer, for 10 years and then took over in 1991. Uh, we were a lot smaller then, but we did have two shows. We also had one in Chicago in June, which was getting smaller by the year. And there was a lull in innovation and creativity and, and the industry spoke loudly and clearly they only needed one show. So we stuck with the Las Vegas one and we looked internationally for more opportunity. And that's the way we started events around the world. But no matter what, the Las Vegas show has certainly blossomed. It's it's followed the economy in, in a lot of ways, and certainly COVID caused it some major hiccups, to put it mildly. We had a, a digital-only version, which was out of Microsoft headquarters uh, when COVID began, and we had a hybrid event in the middle of the COVID Omicron, January 2022, 
I mean, the good news is, knock wood, 2023 uh, is looking phenomenal. And it's, you know, we're expecting over 100,000 people and it's just going to be big. And there's so many product introductions and the buzz is off the charts. And the media, it's the highest uh, global media pre-registration we've ever had. We've had more entries into an innovations award program than we've ever had. It's now like one of the largest auto shows, if not the largest auto show in the world. It has the entire ecosystem and, you know, they have the auto companies. Now they're talking to the chip companies, which are there and, the, and you know, the robotics companies and the all the green companies with that United Nations overlay that I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's 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 pretty exciting. And I'm jazzed up about it. And, you know, my only regret in life that, you know, I, I want to come back in 50 years and see what the CES looks like. And I don't think I'll be able to unless I change my religion and convince myself I'll be able to. Well, you're you're at least in the right space where you know people. If that's if that's possible, then then you probably have a, a, a as good a as, as good a lead on that as anyone. Uh, last question for you, uh, Gary. Uh, if we were in a bar and you had one favorite story to share from a CES show, what comes to mind? Well, there's so many that I can't. I guess in your favorite child, because involving we've had some pretty famous people come, and it depends how much we had to drink as to what I would tell you. Um, but you know, one of the things is 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 that the companies really put their best foot forward and their showmanship there. And, and you know, it's the one opportunity a company may have all year to display what it wants to display, not what the retailers want or the or the financial pages talk about their earnings. It's about what their vision of the future is. And but when you're doing that, you're taking a risk. First of all, that people laugh at you, or or that another risk is your competition then sees what you're doing. And one company took yeah. advantage of that many years ago is a company called Sanya Fisher, which barely exists anymore. Uh, and it was the height of the camcorder. You know, we went to be able to make from 16 millimeter film, which was very awkward to like using essentially digital cameras. And you could use a camcorder and, and, and they put a product in a glass case, totally glass. that was like half the size of anyone else's camcorder. And no one can figure out how they'd physically had done it. And the entire show, there was people, many of them Asian, taking pictures of through this glass case of this camcorder. And you know they're going to run back to Japan or Korea or, or even China and try to reverse engineer and figure out how they did it. And I remember at the end of the end, I talked to the executive about that, about that. And he said, I said, that's amazing. He says, yeah. He said, it's just, there's nothing in that device. We can't get it that small. We just wanted to drive all our competitors crazy. So... <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. That's a great hack. That's a great trick. And um, well, no comment on whether that that that's a statement on where they are today. But it's great, a great story and a great trick for sure. I'll come up with a new, better story for the next interview question. Well, that's a great one. So, well, Gary, thank you very much for for your time. Uh, congratulations and uh, best of luck uh, to you and the team with uh, with CES 2023. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. And well, thanks for asking. Thanks for being part of our history now. My pleasure. Thanks, Gary. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of History Factory Plugged In. Thanks again to Gary Shapiro. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for news coming out of CES in Las Vegas this week from January 5th to the 8th. For more information, go to ces.tech. Stay safe out there, and we will be back soon with a new episode of History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well. Be well.